like to uh, take us into our study of uh, the book of Mark. We are in Mark chapter 9, and uh, the, uh, the, the process of voting uh, is, again, something very unique, and I'd like to segue from that to our message with this, a story about one of our presidents, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The story is told of Franklin Roosevelt, who often endured long receiving lines at the White House. And he complained that no one, no one really paid attention to what he said. And one day during the reception, he decided to try an experiment. To each person who passed down the line and shook his hand, he murmured, I murdered my grandmother this morning. And the guests responded with phrases like, marvelous, keep up the good work. We're so proud of you. God bless you, sir. And it was not till the end of the line while greeting the ambassador from Bolivia that his words were actually heard. Nonplussed, the ambassador leaned over and whispered to Franklin, I'm sure she had it coming. <laughs> now, what in the world does that have to do with Mark chapter 9? Well, let's take a look. Mark chapter 9. And he was saying to them, that is Jesus, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The connection is this, the word truly. When you read that in the gospels, very often it's doubled. Truly, truly I say to you. And that should be something that we underscore in a very profound way because Jesus is saying, listen up, take notice of this. This is important. Don't miss this. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God come in power. This, this statement, some will not taste death, is honestly, it's simply a statement of our human mortality. We know in, in John chapter 11, Jesus said to Mary, um, I say to you, uh, if anyone dies, he will live. Because truly, you will never die if you're a believer. That's, not, that's speaking of eternal life. But what Jesus is talking about here is our mortality. So he's very clear. Some of you guys standing in this circle won't taste death until the kingdom of God comes with power. Um, now, what does that mean? I mean, it leaves me scratching my head because most of us think of the kingdom of God coming with power relates to the second coming. At least that's where my head goes right away. But Jesus is very clear. He says, 
you will see until you see. And the word see speaks of a concrete reality, something that is right in front of you, very discernible as reality. What is this kingdom of God that he's speaking of? Well, the idea here, the kingdom, is really related to the realm, the realm of the kingdom of God. And it speaks of Jesus' royal power as the triumphant Messiah. He is there present with them. In other words, the kingdom of God is where Jesus is. He's the king of kings, right? And where he is, there is the kingdom. It is his realm. Luke 17, um, the gospel writer says of, of Jesus, after he had been questioned by some Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. In your midst. Most specifically, that phrase in the Greek means inside. It is right here within you. Where Jesus is, there is the kingdom of God. Now, he says it's you will, some of you will not taste death until after the kingdom of God has come with power. What power is he talking about? This word power is the word we get dynamite from. Dunamis. What power, what dynamite power is Jesus talking about? Well, I would love to remind you of Ephesians chapter 1. There, Paul writes to the Ephesian church and says, this is my prayer that you would understand what is this glorious power that is within you. And that power is the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's resurrection power, the power to make dead things come alive. <laughs> to, to make old things brand new again. That's the power of the resurrection. And we know that as Jesus rose from the dead, those who were standing with him were right there. So we understand that this, this prophecy that Jesus is making is fulfilled even at the, the time of his resurrection. I think as well, we could say that it is also fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. What happened there? You remember? The Holy Spirit fell upon the, the uh, brothers and sisters there in Jerusalem, waiting on the Lord after his resurrection. And they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. In fact, he had said, wait there in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes with power. It is the power even of the resurrection. This power that is yours in the Holy Spirit. I think as well, 
that perhaps Jesus is also foreshadowing what's going to happen in just six days. Six days from that time, Jesus is going to be transfigured. Now, what in the world does that mean? That's a weird word, isn't it? Don't you use that just about every day? That word transfigured simply means, well, the, the Greek word is metamorphos or metamorpho. It means changed, changed from the inside out. And Jesus is going to experience that in just six days. Would you read with me? Chapter 9, verse 2. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, <laughs> Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles for you. One, one for you and one for Moses and, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And then all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus. Six days later, this happens after Jesus makes this prophetic statement. It's interesting because the, um, Luke records that it was eight days um, he writes, some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went to a mountain to pray. There are parallel passages within the Synoptic Gospels. That is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all, are, they all carry this story. And, and so we get different points of view in this story from each of those Gospel writers. Now, I have to ask myself, wait a second, if Luke says, if, if Luke says eight days and Mark says six days, aha, the Bible contradicts itself. Have you ever had that argument with somebody? Well, I think we need to pull back here and just take a look at this. Again, these are different perspectives. Um, Tradition. I, I want to show you a map of, of the, uh, the Galilee region. Now, you see down at the bottom of the map, you see the Sea of Galilee. It, it's basically a, a big inland lake, right? Tradition uh, has said that the Mount of Transfiguration, the, the mountain on which this transfiguration took place is Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is right down there to the left of the, the south and the west of the Sea of Galilee. 
That's Mount Tabor. Now, we have just come in the previous path, uh, uh, chapter of Mark, we have just been with the disciples in an area called Caesarea Philippi. Now, where is Caesarea Philippi? Would you take a, a, a look at that? Go north from the Sea of Galilee up to that space right there. You see Caesarea Philippi. That's a, the area where they are. And roughly six days after this exchange, this, uh, the, the, this uh, experience of the transfiguration takes place. These guys are on foot. I would say that if it's Mount Tabor, they would have to be hoofing it, right? Yeah, it's a long way away. But take a look just to the north of Caesarea Philippi. You see Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon is uh, one of the highest mountains in that entire region. It's over 9,000 feet tall, as opposed to Mount Tabor, which is about 800 feet above sea level. Or, excuse me, 1,800 feet above sea level. So there's a big difference. In fact, there's, quite honestly, there's about five times difference there between the height. And you'll note that in Mark, he says they went to a high mountain. They were in Caesarea Philippi. They went to a high mountain. Most scholars today understand that, that Mount Hermon is likely the place where Jesus was transfigured. Now, we started down this path by trying to figure out why does um, Luke say eight days and Mark says six days. Well, think about the hike from Caesarea Philippi to the top of that mountain. It's very, very possible that Luke is saying, hey, it took them eight days to get there. And, and uh, uh, that includes the hike. And Jesus or, or Mark may, may very well say, wait a second. No, it was, it was six days. There's room for that, that difference, if you will, within that reality that Mount Hermon is the place that this took place. Now, um, let's look at verse 2 again. Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. It's interesting that in Deuteronomy chapter 19, the Lord says that it is by the mouth of two or three witnesses that truth is established. And Jesus reaffirms that in Matthew 18. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, truth is established. Jesus takes three witnesses with him. It's interesting to me that he, these three, Peter, James, and John, are the same three that he took with him into the inner room when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Remember back in Mark chapter 5, we, we went through that story of Jesus, Jesus uh, being approached by the, the officer of the synagogue. His name was Jairus. And he says, Jesus, come and heal my daughter, please. She's dying. And on the way... On the way, a woman touches the hem of Jesus' garment and is 
creates this commotion because Jesus says, hey, I, somebody just touched me. And the, and the disciples say, well, Jesus, there's a whole bunch of people around you. There's a lot of people touching you right now. And he said, no, I, I perceive that power has gone out. And the woman who touched his garment was healed. In the meantime, this, they were on the way to Jairus's house, right? This is an emergency. They're on their way to Jesus' house, and this, this experience of the woman touching his, the hem of his garment slowed him down. And Jesus, um, Jesus it take, takes the time to interact with this woman, and in the meantime, the servants of Jairus come and say, don't bother the, the master anymore because your daughter is dead. And what does Jesus do? He says, no, we're going to go on. She's not dead. And they go, they get to Jairus' house, and Jesus takes these same three, Peter, James, and John, into this private space where Jairus' daughter is, and he raises her from the dead. These same three guys. It's very interesting as well that uh, Jesus took these very same three guys, Peter, James, and John, with him to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now you're saying, well, wait, I thought all of the, the disciples were there with him at the Garden of Gethsemane prior to his crucifixion. Yes, that's true. But the scripture records that these three, Jesus took with him into that into a, a, a space away from the others, and he specifically asked them to watch and pray with him. These three. Now, what do we know happened there? They fell asleep. Not just once, not just twice, three times, right? What a bunch of losers. What's, what is going on with Jesus? He's, he's, he continues to take these three with him. Here he takes them up to this mountain where he will be transfigured. This is a very important experience in the life of Jesus' ministry. Very, very important. And he includes these three guys again. What is going on? Well, it's interesting that, that Luke records that they went up to the mountain to pray. I think it's important at this point to recognize that Jesus himself understood the importance of having people close to him, people he could trust. I think it's true in many of our lives. There is the reality of concentric circles of trust. We have those that are close to us, and it's usually a very few. Maybe it's one or two or three people. And Jesus understood that that was an important part of not only his, his uh, discipling of his disciples, but of his personal ministry. And that reality is true for us. It's important for us to have a few people, not a lot, but a few people that are very close to us that we can trust with the most intimate details of our lives. And then there will be those that are in the second circle that we can share more with, but not all of what we share with those 
two or three that are very close to us. And I would, I would encourage you, if you don't have that inner circle, God's model for living includes that. So it's important that we, we discover who those people are and experience even what Jesus experienced, the trust of them. Now, let's take a look at who these characters are because I think the Lord has something for us in it. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they're brothers, right? They, they are... They are, they are brothers, loyal as loyal can be, and yet Jesus names them the sons of thunder. Why in the world does he do that? Mark chapter 3, we see that. He calls them the sons of thunder. Well, I think loyalty very often has with it a component of jealousy, doesn't it? We're jealous of one another and for one another in the midst of loyalty. And brothers are pretty good about duking it out with each other when it comes to that kind of thing. They're loyal as the day is long. Do not get in between them. Um, uh, just a quick illustration of not getting in between brothers. We have two dogs that happen to come from the same litter. Um, not too long ago, I, I uh, took their food out to them, one, each in one hand, and I set it down like this and discovered quickly it's too close. <laughs> too close. And they started wrangling with each other like they were going to kill each other. And I got in between them and ended up getting this finger completely lacerated. Completely lacerated. I have no, I, I, no idea which one did the dirty work. But you don't get in between brothers because their loyalty sometimes is expressed even as jealousy. Loyalty also carries with it this, this idea of protection. It's seasoned with being protective. Um, in, uh, in Mark chapter 9, later in this chapter, we discover that, that uh, when others are casting out demons in the name of Jesus, these two guys, these two brothers, um, come to Jesus and, uh, and say, hey, Jesus, we saw somebody else doing this in your name and just want to let you know that we told them not to do it. Told them not to do it. And Jesus responds to them, gently redirecting them, saying, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. He takes that, that protective piece and fashions it into helpful ministry, into his vision. 
Loyalty often is seasoned as well with judgmentalism. Later, also in this chapter, we read that when the Samaritans rejected Jesus as he was on his way to Jerusalem, and they stopped to they stopped in this area of where Samaritans lived, the Samaritans said, get out of here because you're going to Jerusalem. They rejected Jesus. And these two guys, Peter, or James and John, um, <laughs> they said, hey, Jesus, um, do you want us to call down fire on these guys? <laughs> let's, let's, let's do that. And Jesus, again, redirects them and says, you don't know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Loyalty also has this characteristic of of ambition in it. Uh, These two guys, James and John, approach Jesus with asking, okay, Jesus, when, you're, when you are, take your seat in the kingdom, uh, can we be on your right and left? In fact, one of, the, uh, uh, one of the gospel writers says that even their mother came to Jesus and, and said, hey, can you tell me which one's going to be on the right, which one's going to be on the left? And uh, that ambition has its negative connotations, but it has its positive as well. And Jesus redirects them. He says, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. We also read of the fact that these guys may have argued over who is the greatest. And Jesus redirects them and says, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be the last of all and the servant of all. So that's James and John. Let's look a little bit at Peter. Who is this character, Peter? Well, I think the characteristic that really stands out in Peter's life is that he's bold. He's bold, and boldness carries with it um, also being a risk taker. I mean, think about it. Um, While they're out on the boat on the Sea of Galilee, and there's this storm going on, and and they're all, all freaked out about it, and here comes Jesus walking on the water. What is what does Peter do? I mean, the 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 disciples are thinking that this, hey, it's gotta be a ghost. It's a ghost. They're terrified, right? And what does Peter do? In response to the Lord, he says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out onto the water with you. Now, wrap your head around that for just a second. If it's a ghost, it's got to be demonic. And what do demons do? They lie. And here's Peter in his boldness, being the risk taker that he is. He says, if it's you, Jesus, tell me to come out. Well, wait a second. If it was a ghost and it was a demon, would the demon have said, sure, come on out. Have a nice swim. 
But, but Peter is this bold risk taker and says, Lord, if it's you, call me out on the water. We sang about that this morning, didn't we? And we know that to be a great exercise of faith in Peter's life. What happened to him, though? He took his eyes off Jesus and he began to sink. But what, did, what was Jesus' response? His response was, Peter, take my hand. Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt, you little faither, you? He's not upset with him, but he redirects him. Part of boldness also includes this idea that, that um, you call it like you see it. We saw that in chapter 8. Peter, Peter is, is the one who's, who responds to Jesus. Who do you say that I am? Peter jumps right out and says, I'm calling it like I see it. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. In Matthew, the gospel writer records that Jesus responded with these words. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my Father who is in heaven, I also say to you that you are Peter, you are Petros. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be shall be have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Jesus is, yeah, this business of calling it like you see it is bold, and it can be frightening, but Jesus rewards honest faith. Boldness also in the life of Peter includes being impetuous. Um, think about it. Again, just previously in chapter 8, uh, Jesus is talking about dying, right? He's talking about being killed. And, and Peter, Peter, in all his, all his wisdom, <laughs> he just said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is talking about dying. And Peter gets up and says, no, you aren't. Well, that's not going to happen. He rebukes Jesus. Wait a second. He just said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he rebukes him? Something's a little scrambled up here, I think. But that's part of boldness. How does Jesus redirect him? He says, get behind me, Satan. Because this is not the business that I have been sent to. Boldness includes commitment. Peter is the one who is clear to say, Lord, I will go to the death for you. In John 13, however, Jesus responds, you know, Peter, you will lay down your life for me. Will you? Will you really do that? Truly I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Hmm. Boldness also has with it a uh, level of self-will. And in Peter's case, 
it includes being a leader. After Jesus died and was raised from the dead, what do we know that Peter, Peter decided to do? John chapter 1, we read the story. He says, guys, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. That's what I'm going to do. And the scripture says that the other disciples followed him. After all of what they had seen, that's his intent. And Jesus responds to Peter with these words. Peter, tend my sheep. Don't go fishing. Tend my sheep. Shepherd my sheep. Tend my lambs. Take care of them. All of this is to say that Jesus' inner circle was not made up of perfect people. And that reality should, should encourage us. But two very, distinctive, two very distinctive characteristics of those in his inner circle are loyalty and boldness. Another word for loyalty, being loyal, is about being faithful. Another word for or, or expression of boldness is not hesitating. Peter's legacy led him to be the evangelist, the lead evangelist of the New Testament church. James' legacy is that he became the first apostle to be martyred. John's legacy is that he became God's New Testament prophet and the author or this inscriber of Revelation and the Gospel of John. So my question is this. Do, do we want to be someone Jesus calls into his inner circle? Psalm 25 the psalmist writes, the secret of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he will make them know his covenant. My eyes are continually toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. The secret of the Lord belongs to those who are in his inner circle. Do you want to be someone that Jesus calls his friend? John 15, Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. It's important also for us to know that God has not given us a spirit of timidity or a spirit of fear, but an invitation to be bold, an invitation to be loyal to him, because he has already declared his loyalty to us. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, 
You've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit there. We are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. I want to leave you with this this morning, that God uses people of action. People who are loyal and bold. We're not called to be spectators on the side, simply watching God work. We're called to be a part of the action. I'm going to take a moment now to simply say we have, a, we have an opportunity for application right in front of us. We've been talking about the real Christmas surprise. Do you know that it's one of the biggest outreaches we do to our community? Bible school is really big in the summer. But this, we, we have connected with over 2,500 people in the past. And what is it about? It's about being loyal to the message that, the, that Christmas is about Jesus. It's about his birth. Loyal to that message. And it's being bold to share that freely, openly with our community. I have to tell you, we are, we are, there are those who are questioning, should we do this this year? Seriously. The reason is because we need volunteers. We need over 200 volunteers to be involved. And we've got, as of this weekend, a need for at least, at least 80 more. And I'm scratching my head thinking, wait a second. God hasn't called us to be spectators. He's called us to be in the action. And I guess I want to put that out there for you. This is a point of, of opportunity that's right in front of us. to reach our community, to be bold with the message that we are loyal to Jesus. And it's him that we proclaim. It's him that we remember at Christmas time. It's not about the spectacular gift giving and the tinsel and the trees. It's about a humble birth of our Savior. I heard this morning from Estelle, too, that she's got the, the Operation Christmas Child packing party next Saturday. What in the world is that? Do you know, she, she spends all year long collecting stuff to fill boxes to send across the ocean, throughout the world, to children so that they can know that Jesus is the reason for Christmas. A gift she spends all year doing that, but she needs help packing them up. That's what the packing party is. That's all it is. 
showing up on Saturday to say, hey, um, let's pack this up and send it off. She's in the foyer today, hoping to get enough people to help. She can't do it all by herself. A point of application. Quickly, so what does this mean for us? Number one, God invites us into his inner circle. He's called us friends. He's called us his children. He's called us heirs, inheriting inheriting not only his privileges, but his purpose. And his purpose is greater than our personal, our personal experience, our, our personal blessing, our personal spiritual satisfaction. God's great purpose is in sending Jesus is more than my personal salvation. It's the salvation of all. And we are not called to be spectators of God's power and presence, but to become participants in his purpose. What have we learned? We've learned that God can use anyone, anyone who is willing to be loyal, loyal to him, and then bold enough to stop watching from the sidelines and be a part of his purpose. So the question is, then what, what shall we do? That's really up to you. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you today? I can't answer that. Would you stand with me? Lord, we thank you for the fact that you have invited us into your inner circle. And the truth is, Lord, some of us are bashful. Some of us are scared to step into that circle. But we thank you that you do not look upon us with judgment, but rather you look upon us in a manner to encourage us to redirect us, to enable us to be a part of your purpose. As we leave this place this morning, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us by your spirit. Help us, help us be faithful and loyal to you. Help us be bold and able to step out in faith. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. If you desire prayer this morning, there will be those waiting up here to pray with you. I encourage you as well, if the Lord's been speaking to you this morning, don't keep it to yourself. Share with someone else and allow the Lord to use that witness even in your own life. Amen and amen.